Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You speak the truth, my man. The truth only means something if the person who is listening understands it. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we have Jesse Single coming on the show in the second segment. Did you hunker down? Are you ready for the Are you ready for the tweet shitstorm we're gonna get? I'm afraid. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> I don't like Twitter meanness. I know. Like I like I I still. Even just reading Jesse's feed, yeah, no. like stresses me out. Because <laughs> they don't, they don't play. They'll fuck you up. No, <laughs> <laughs> fucking studio gangsters is what they are. <laughs> or yeah, and possibly real gang- to me. Like we don't know. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> real gangsters don't tweet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, the, now there's another tweet shit storm. <laughs> Twitch storm. Like, what's the fucking tweet storm? Tweets through. Um, so that's what we have coming on in the second uh, segment. We talk about his new book on social psychology. We talk about, um, uh, we get into a little bit of a culture war debate. So yeah. that's coming up. But before, <laughs> before that, something much less controversial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So last episode, something happened that sh- like surprised both of us. I said that I wasn't convinced that there aren't ghosts or spirit entities of some kind. And then you and Paul both first thought I was joking, and then Paul just thought all of a sudden he had, like, transported to some (laughs) alternate universe or something like that. Um, And, like, it's funny because I was just as surprised that you guys reacted that way. Yeah, my, my my jaw dropped. Yeah, right. Like, uh, yes. And and maybe it's, we've never talked about this stuff. But yeah, like, I, I no. kind of feel like it's, cr- you know, like, almost irresponsible epistemically to be as sure <laughs> as you guys are. Well, that- let's, let's frame this in the right way. Because the way you're <laughs> saying it is like, oh, I said I wasn't 100% sure that goes I'm not 100% sure of anything. Right. But you were like ready to blame your glass breaking, not on the scientific principles of like heat and glass and cold, but like on the real possibility that ghosts might inhabit like where you were. My house. Okay, no. Yeah. I think so that was that part was a joke. Like I don't think having looked it up and seen that glasses do explode. Uh, I will I do have enough Occam's razor in me to uh to think probably that's what happened in my particular house. That's why we didn't move out. Uh, you know, like white people 
always stay in the house when <laughs> when there's a ghost there. Like, but I like we're basement. not those white people. Like we would just move out. Like it's the ghost's house now. Uh, uh, yeah. So so and then to to your charge of epistemic responsibility. Like I guess that's what it boils down to. Because like if you're saying that um, you have like this looser standard or like a th- a different threshold for believing in supernatural phenomena then um then i i sort of think that once once you accept the possibility of those sort of like ghost stories and and you know ghouls and zombies and leprechauns or whatever else you well, no. to believe no 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 then, <laughs> then you sort of open the door like then then you can believe anything like you might as well believe that essential oils cure covid like there's just there's more evidence of that than there is of ghosts. Well, I I don't know that I I haven't looked at the essential <laughs> oil COVID <laughs> connection. So you, you haven't seen the meta analysis. I can't comment on that, but I will say that like I don't think so. You and Paul, more mostly you, has been saying like, do you believe in leprechauns? Do you believe? No, those are very specific things that you know I probably don't believe in. But like spiritual entities, supernatural events have been. Um, reported for you know millennia it goes back to every it goes to every culture it goes to every uh, period of time and like I, I think it's crazy not to be open to the possibility like we understand so little about our universe we don't understand consciousness at all pretty much um, like I think it's just weird to, to take a strong anti like spirit or uh, I don't know, non-material entity stance, given that there's just, you know, this has been part of hu- the human race for a long time. And maybe that's because of some weird evolutionary quirk, but maybe not. Like, we don't know. And that's all I'm asking for, is just to... I mean, so... <laughs> so so you're put, you're lumping together sort of a class of things like that you're you're calling supernatural and you're saying like well there's evidence that or at least humans have believed in this class of thing for a long time but the, they've believed a whole bunch of different things and they've also been like very very superstitious and found like sort of you know believed all kinds of spurious correlations like so like let's just take let's just take a superstition that arises from a spurious correlation like you put on this pair of socks and you won the lottery. And so from then you put on, you put on the same pair of socks forevermore and you develop this true belief that socks help you win the lottery. These particular socks help you win the lottery. People have been doing that for like a long, long, long time, I, right? Yeah, People have been I do developing superstitions. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but there we just know like that that's just poor evidence of a causal connection. Um, like that's just not the, I'm, I'm confident saying that there's nothing, there's nothing that could cause your socks to make you win the lottery. Like, and so just because humans have been believing it for a really, really long time, like it's not, it, it's not enough evidence for me. Like we've been a superstitious, scared lot for a lot, like a long time. You mean like jinxing or whatever, or the reverse jinxing yeah. is sort of what you're saying. Um, it, like all, all of those kinds of superstitions that arise, it's hard to come up with a category that, that would capture it. But I mean like those things that happen when you you put one thing together with another right. thing, just yeah. like just merely because post hoc yeah. ergo propter hoc kind of thing. Sure. Um, and, and like the parsimonious explanation for all of those superstitious beliefs is just like some sort of tendency to see patterns where there are none. And I, I, and I think like that, that all of the things that are uh, claimed to be supernatural, like it's striking to me that we've never actually captured any like evidence of a supernatural. So like what you're saying sounds like you might be saying like, well, there are parts of the natural universe that we don't know. 
And sure, like I totally believe that. Like there might be, but but Not there might be. There's a hundred. There is like ninety. Like yeah, sorry. Like I mean, eighty-five there percent be, of the universe there, is dark matter, which we don't understand, and and it's just like a word or a concept that doesn't right. Like yeah, yeah. But the people who study dark matter understand it enough to have developed a scientific theory about it, right? So like it, it's weird to rely on that as like the no. I, all I'm saying, that, I'm relying on it only to point out our epistemic situation, which is not very good when it comes to understanding the basic nature of reality because when it comes to the universe which we thought we had a much better handle on until people realized that galaxies weren't operating according to the normal laws of gravity and so so we posit this thing which we can't detect in every in any way and we have no more evidence for other than its effect or, or what we presume is its effect. No, it really just, the only evidence for it, right, is that our other good theories do, seem to run afoul um, when presented with this new data. And so it's an right. epicycle. It's, it's an epicycle. It's like Ptolemy's well, epicycle so, thing. Well, so we have systematic evidence of, like, say, the motion of, of galaxies and stars and clusters of stars. And that doesn't conform to the amount of matter that we thought was in the natural universe. So we posit this, like, sort of unknown entity, just like we used to posit atoms before we were able to observe it. Just like we posited black holes to account for, just as a purely theoretical thing to account for observations. And then we eventually found evidence of black holes. We will eventually find some evidence of dark matter, and we will keep learning about the physical universe. It's what what I don't what I the step that I don't want to take is to say that there is something above and beyond the the science like so so like to posit a supernatural agent is to really say like there is a realm there's a there are agentic forces that are acting in this world and there's never been not even like with dark matter where you have like the mathematics of, of gravity is telling you something is there. There is strong triangulating evidence telling you something is there. There's nothing. Other Except than, there's like five than, billion reports of sightings like yeah, over the course like, of history. One billion, there are one billion people who believe in Muhammad and there are like close to a billion people who but believe in But they don't say Jesus, that like, they've that, actually encountered Muhammad. They believe it for some other reason. But, but a lot of Christians say that they've encountered like – some I, right. I think you have to take God. people's testimony seriously and not just assume that they're crazy or deluded or psych they have psychosis or something like that. As an epistemic agent myself, the fact that so many people across so many periods of time and so many cultures, including like people I have so much respect for and think are total geniuses, like Mark Twain, for example, uh, the fact that so many people have uh, have claimed Wait, to have witnessed, uh, he claimed right. to have witnessed. Um, a couple of miraculous healings and and some sort of supernatural. I don't remember. I read about this a long time ago. But he was very interested in the supernatural and pursued it. Um, with, and, you know, this is Mark Twain. He is not some cool. Yeah, Mark Twain is not a scientist. Like, I don't. Right, he's I mean, not a scientist, like, but like science doesn't of, like explain. See, this is what it boils down to. You are like a sci. You have scientism, or you're a scientist. No, no, no. I just whatever the fuck people say when they're making this scientist. accusation. Like you just think like science. If if science can't explain it, then it definitely doesn't exist. But I don't. I, I just um, don't think any reason we have epistemically, from the standpoint of having to look at subject science to the same standards we subject everything else to. I don't see why we should believe that. Well, like, it would be very, very easy to get a person before and after a miraculous healing and just demonstrate that it had occurred. How would that be easy? Um, 
Why? Because there are plenty of sick people, right? If there is one person, one person among the 7 billion in this world who says they have the capacity to miraculously heal, who could actually bring someone forward, say this person we all agree has like tumors riddled through their body, and now like I'm going to do my incantation and they don't. Oh, yeah. Like it wouldn't be that difficult to gather evidence. For, for that, but for like a visitation even, even or the motion some sort of an object. Yeah, the motion of an object like your glass or something like uh, that, that had zero explanation around it. Every time that like we investigate some of these reports, we come to find like pretty mundane explanations for what people saw. With- I guess I just not, I'm not convinced A, that I think the vast majority of these things haven't been investigated scientifically. And I think a, strong, a, a, a large percentage of the ones that have, if they have, I mean like the healings or whatever, the Yuri Geller, I can move pages. That, that I agree is all yeah. bullshit. There are people who are con men and who will... But, pl- uh, but people have believed in psychic phenomena for, like, millennia, right? So I just, guess what I'm asking right, just is how do you somebody distinguish be- between – yeah, how do you distinguish between – you're using the weight of, of, like, the number of people who have believed in, like, ghosts, for instance, as the one and only source of evidence. But, but plenty of people believe in psychic phenomena, like, just as many. Right, probably. but just because people have believed false things doesn't mean that – How do you know they're false is what I'm saying. How do you know that they're false? Like, how do you know that the beliefs in psychic powers are false? Uh, well, like, you, there have been some good debunkings of those things, right? Um, and I guess I don't know. Yep. Um, in fact, like, maybe, yeah, and maybe, like, healing, like, this is not one that I've sort of, in my layman's way, kind of looked into at all. It doesn't interest me as much for whatever reason is this idea of, like, somebody being able to move a cup with their head or something like that. <laughs> the healings is interesting because I remember that was something that Mark Twain was uh, amazed by and somebody that I think would be hard to fool in the way that you might fool an ordinary rube. Uh, I mean, interesting. So Sir Arthur, Conan, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the, he was a a sucker for the supernatural and he and Houdini were once friends and, and sort of parted ways because, uh, during the, the sort of rise of spiritualism in Europe and in America, Sherlock Holmes, I mean, uh, Conan Doyle was like just buying it whole, whole cloth. And the people who were demonstrating these psychic phenomena were, uh, People like Houdini would tour the country showing that they're the methods by which they would fool people. And so they were like, the magic community has long been sort of debunkers of all of this stuff. And so they would go and do the same things that psychics did and show how they did it. Yeah. And they had a falling out. So like, it's not that I want to attribute stupidity to these people. I just, I think that we, I guess we just have a fundamental disagreement about what would constitute evidence. And like, I do think that we understand enough natural law that if we have, if it, if natural law has a shot at explaining something, that that would be the default, not to posit supernatural entities. I don't posit them, right? Like I, like I want to be clear. I'm agnostic about them, but seriously agnostic, not in uh, because it's such yeah. a broad category of thing, spiritual entities, and because of its um, really widespread. I mean, it's it's amazing. You look at, you read Homer, you read Shakespeare, you read. Um, and, you know, the Eastern texts and ghosts and spirits and all sorts of things are all over those texts. And I'm sure you could come up with a, a, a theory that might explain that stuff away. But since I don't have that theory, there would be no way to test that particular theory. 
I, I'm, I just am open to it. Like, and I just think that's the, like just having a little epistemic humility when it comes to uh, a subject like this is the right stance. Well, I, I, uh, reject your use of the term humility to push me into believing things for which there is no evidence. Right. So like I, the only evidence that you can come up with is people's, is people's reporting. And so of course it would be a difficult task to go point by point and refuting every single, uh, like claim, but so many claims that have come forward have been debunked. Like even, um, the oracles, right. We know like the, the oracles, we're just getting super high off of whatever natural gases were escaping those caves, right? There was nothing supernatural about it. There was just like going on a trip, right? And for centuries, millennia, people believed that these were people who were in touch with the spiritual world. But now that we have a decent explanation for it, it seems like, oh yeah, this is just one among the many things that we now, we, we, people used to think one thing and now we think we, we know that that's not true. Like it would be difficult to go through all of them. That but. does happen. Yes. But it also like that's, you know, what else happens is scientific theories turn out to be totally wrong. Phlogiston. Yeah, but by, turns we, out to we be know it, we know it because of science, right? Like, so yeah, the reason that we know that those scientific theories like phlogiston was wrong was simply because we did more science, right? So like we have a really robust method to figure out when our theories are wrong. Um, that's not possible for supernatural claims. Right, but given that it's such a small sub, I'm, all I'm saying is the principle of here's a category of thing that in a, a, a small fraction of the cases, w when people have investigated, they have determined it was faked. Doesn't mean that that category of thing doesn't exist, or that that's a, or even that like the method of acquiring what you consider to be evidence is faulty. In this case, it would just be testimony. I, so so all I'm saying is that, like, you know, the yes, there have been charlatans, there have been con men that have been exposed, but that doesn't mean that they're not the phenomenon that people have been reporting for thousands of years is is something that we shouldn't believe in, that we should deny. Like, that just seems overly dogmatic. Like, that's the funny thing is, like, it just seems that's my... That's the reason I, I I'm so surprised is there's a kind of dogmatism. There's kind of like pro-materialist dogmatism to this view. It, it's not dogmatism to, to draw a line like in what you're willing to believe and what you're not. And I think the, that if it were true that supernatural entities had any sort of interaction with this world, isn't it weird that not once anybody has been able to demonstrate that? Like not a single time, all we have is testimony. So like, you know, the amazing Randy put out this, this like, I don't remember how much it was, but it became like a half a million dollar prize for anybody who could come into the lab and demonstrate uh, psychic phenomena. No, like nobody could, like there's just nobody. Isn't it weird that we won't have anything other than just people saying they saw something? The people from the like spirit world don't want to like try to claim James Randi is a million dollars. Like that, that doesn't seem weird to me. But, uh, but like, but I like agree. Like if you want to say that those yeah. psychic powers that people claim to have, the most common ones like telekinesis, we have reason to doubt the existence of those things based on the debunking that has occurred. I would agree with that. But I would say that that still leaves a whole class of, I guess you'd call them supernatural, above natural, you know, uh, more than what we think comprises the natural world. There's a whole class of those things that I wouldn't put in the category of I believe in and I wouldn't put the, in the category of I 
don't believe in. I'm just like, I'm, I guess I'm happy having this huge um, set of things that I just don't know. And I, I mean, I mean, I am too. I just think that like the, the natural world provides so much wonder and the more and more, you know, have you ever heard the term, the God of the gaps? Yeah. Like the more and yeah. So the more and more we learn, the less and less there is room for those supernatural explanations. Like we see that they were actually not the right explanations. And, and I feel like it's, it's not dogmatism closing oneself off to believing in supernatural phenomena. It's sort of just accepting with certainty some of the things we do know about the natural world. Like, for instance, that we've never, ever had any real evidence other than people saying they saw a ghost. We have zero evidence that they exist. And, like, uh, people saying that they saw something or heard something or did something is not enough evidence for me to, to uh, right? Like, I would keep my mind open if, like, there were actual evidence, right? The like number of... For dark, dark matter. Like, there's a ton of evidence for dark matter. We just don't know what it's made of. Yeah, I guess that we take different lessons from that. Like, so first of all, I, you know, if it had been just a handful of people you know, um, over the, you know, a certain period of time, I would agree that that's not enough. But, but, but the 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 testimony in these cases and the way it's sort of built into the fabric of so many cultures, like that, I I think comprises enough evidence for me to be agnostic about it because like it doesn't have to be like scientific experiment was able to confirm or you know not falsify or however you think science works you and lackens but like <laughs> uh the yeah it's amazing by the way it's t- it's incredible how tough you are at accepting social psychological evidence you become like the most dogmatic person in the world about like the rigorous nature of what what it required to show that a psychological effect is real but you're like but ghosts maybe i, I, I put those also in the category <laughs> of i don't know and I think there's <laughs> roughly the same reason to believe both things. You know? and, and, and I think there is something that is going on with your lumping together of all those, because a lot of those claims are contradictory and like, you know, people talking about, you know, people who believe that the Virgin Mary exists and say they saw the Virgin Mary um, are very, very different than like people who say that they, you know, believe in some spirit mother earth and that she created, you know, like it's, they're super different. So to lump them all together, like the only category that I can figure out that, that like includes all of those is like crazy. Wow. Okay. <laughs> right. So here's what I would say about those things, right? Like, I think what you may have is some sort of weird that like something that we can't even conceptualize because we don't have the concepts for it because of all the scientific or whatever <laughs> language uh that has been imposed by the four horsemen overlords but like i think that that certainly your culture and your own weird psychology will influence sort of if you let's say that there is some event like this you know, it, it totally makes sense to me that some people would say, oh, that was Muhammad, and another, some people would say that was the Virgin Mary because of their cultural context. But what maybe links the two of them is some sort of, again, uh, uh, undescribable, if you haven't experienced it, event that then is seen through their prism, their cultural prism. So that's what I, I, yeah, would, I yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I agree that that's, like, certainly what goes on. I, I think, like, just... Like the example that comes to mind for me is um, dream paralysis. You know, like when when people 
are halfway between a dream and awake and they're completely paralyzed and they often report having out of body like they can yeah. like almost like they're floating above their body and so like different cultures would have like different accounts for what that is um that second process like the culture is giving you the tools to interpret what you saw like i'm totally down with i just don't i i just think they're more likely to be in the class of things like oh it was dream paralysis it was something that we can explain you know that I think Rodney Asher, who did Room 237, yeah, he uh, did a movie about dream paralysis. Oh, I no. I think. Yeah. Uh, he did. It's called uh, The Nightmare. Yeah. We might look at that. Cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 2015. Um, so, so uh, you know, you said something earlier in a text to me that, that I'm actually very curious about, and that is that... Um, you think a lot more people who listen to our podcast w- would be more on your side of things than than on my side? No, I and didn't. I don't say know that. how to. I said you, that you. I agreed that you that they would more <laughs> would be on your side, but that you would be surprised at the number of people on my side. Yeah. Okay. So we can test that. So, like, I would be surprised if more than twenty percent of people said that they believed in supernatural phenomena. Is that? No, no, no. But it can't be phrased like that. This is like a poll. So this is like the political polling is how you frame the question. <laughs> that all Me- I think like, we've both Me- made our get- cases, right? Like just let's are get- you on uh, are you in Tamler or David's position yeah. on this? Not do you believe in leprechauns, which is how you would want to frame it, or don't you? Right. Or that you would frame it like are you a dogmatic uh, believer in the Sam, yeah. Sam Harris religion of scientism? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, yeah, I wouldn't frame I it that know. way because then probably you would win. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know the best way to to go about testing this other than telling people. I, so I don't want to get a lot of a lot of email, but but I actually want to know. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I think you could. We could put out a Twitter poll or something like that. But I think it just yeah, has to be you know for people who have heard this episode, although you can't trust them. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. And also, like, there might be sort of supernatural people who are weighing in. But I guess that would only help me. The only evidence I have for anything supernatural ever, ever happening is that time I had sex with a demon. <laughs> yeah. like there, but I draw the right. line there. That's what I think of this must be. It must be like <laughs> that you just some demon came in and just had sex with you like multiple times. <laughs> and, uh, just, and so you're just I'm saying that, that, that couldn't have been real. That, yeah. He didn't mean to hurt me. I deserved it. Um, uh, yeah, but it is true that, like, I, you know, as as you know, and many of our listeners know, I grew up in a very, very religious household who believed in, not in not in ghosts as in the, the spirits of people who die uh, coming back, because they're very actually, Seventh-day Adventists are very clear that, that those don't exist. Mm-hmm. But they believed in, like, the devil and fallen angels, what we might call demons, actually having a role in the world. And, like, you know, they would attribute... People like in my family would attribute David Copperfield's flying across stage to like what most certainly must have been some devil's bargain that he made. <laughs> and and I, I used to even say like, you know, I don't if God exists, maybe he doesn't want to talk to me. But like at least if the devil or a demon showed up in my room and like then I would like have some firm, firm right. evidence to believe in. But but, you know. I've, like William James, as interested in religion as I am, I have not once had a real religious experience. Other than well, so like when we have this fight over texts, you ask me if I believe in some specific thing. Well, you said ghosts. 
Yeah, I mean, and I mean ghosts in a very broad sense. But, like, you know, if somebody believes that the devil, which is, <laughs> you know, the more specific they get, the more I think that's probably bullshit. Um, I am just open to the broader range of phenomena that I guess would be called supernatural because they don't fit in with our current understanding of natural laws. And I'm, I'm just open to that. I think that is the right epistemic position to be in. Not, it's not a comfortable one because you're, you don't know if they exist and you don't know if they don't. And maybe you're leaning in one direction or another. Maybe I'd probably lean your way. But I'm so mo- right. so much more open to the possibility, I think, than you are, which is what right. our disagreement boils down to. And, yeah, and I think to to summarize my my stance, it really is that um, there there is a, a a point at which I think it's dangerous to believe in things without without in what I'm saying with no evidence. Um, and once you open the door to that, then you open the door to believing in a whole lot of things. And so while I totally believe that there are features of the natural world that can't be explained, even ones that might actually influence our world in weird ways. I have zero reason, like if I'm a good Bayesian, like the prior that I said is zero, to believe that there is like a real supernatural entity that has ever affected this world. But... So is our disagreement like just boiled down to like, I'm a frequentist, you're a ba- Bayesian? <laughs> you you p-hacked into believing in ghosts. <laughs> I I want to call your theory the theory that dark matter makes Satan do bad things. Like, <laughs> Satan is just, <laughs> Satan is dark matter. <laughs> dark matter and consciousness make leprechauns exist. <laughs> so so we had, uh, because Paul was on the episode where he, where he said this and he expressed shock, uh, he, he shared with us a message that he got from his son, Zach Bloom, who's a, an avid listener of, of Very Bad Wizards, yeah. who just texted him, does Tamler really believe in ghosts? <laughs> it really is so such a, like, we're, we are in a disenchanted age. That, uh, I, uh, contrary can... to what you say about that, I think that the enchantment for me just comes through the wonder of science. You know, I'm like a Carl Saganite, right? Where I'm like, wow, billions and billions of stars. That's also billions. awesome. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be either or, right? Like, I'm just saying, if there is a supernatural entity in this universe that can actually appear to me, please appear to me. Like, yeah. before we record the next episode. Appear to David. Really... <laughs> Not to me, because that stuff freaks me out. <laughs> May God have mercy on your soul, Tamler. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, especially now. <laughs> You're going to just have that Seventh-day Adventist uh, devil, like, just banging you every night. He's going to ravage me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be like, I am sorry. I tried to, you know, I tried to warn you, but. You know. <laughs> All right. Let's come back and talk to Jesse Singo. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is sponsored by BetterHelp. Look, there are times when we all need help, really all of us. Um, There are times also when it seems like there's no good place to get the help that we need. Of course, there are crisis lines that specialize in dealing with emergencies. But what if you just need or want to talk to somebody who's professionally trained to listen to the sorts of issues that you're dealing with? You would have to go about finding a therapist using word of mouth, uh, making an appointment, getting there physically, which is tough nowadays, hoping they take your insurance and that they have a free time slot and that they're taking new patients. But things are different with BetterHelp. Uh, BetterHelp is a service that will allow you to talk to a licensed professional therapist 
within 24 hours of when you sign up. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with a therapist that has experience and expertise in the particular area that you're struggling with, whether it be something like anxiety or grief or depression, or just the kind of anger that you get from browsing Twitter every day, which is something that happens to me. You can have a telephone call, you can do text messages, or you can have a video call with a therapist, again, in under 24 hours. Anything that you share would be confidential. It's affordable, but if you can't afford it, there are options for financial aid. It's available in all 50 states and across the world. And if you want to learn a little bit more about BetterHelp, you can just go to their website and read some of the testimonials that are posted daily on their site. So if you think that you need the sort of help that BetterHelp might be able to offer you, as a listener of Very Bad Wizards, you'll get 10% off of your first month if you visit betterhelp.com VBW. So go ahead and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health and go to betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Mercy me. Mercy me, the night is long. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time in the episode where we like to take a moment and just really reflect on the wonderful audience that we have. And thank you all for all your wonderful comments, your interaction with us, your interaction with each other, for giving us the moral support that it takes to keep this fucking show going on for eight and a half years or however long it's been. (laughs) Um, We really appreciate it. You can email us if you want to... uh, uh, get in touch with us. You can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to our Very Bad Wizards account at verybadwizards or at Tamler and at Peas. You can find like-minded uh, Very Bad Wizards listeners on our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. Um, you know, I was randomly talking to one of the hosts of the Decoding the Gurus podcast. Do you know? The, do you know this podcast where they talk? About, uh, no, it's it's great. I highly recommend it. Um, they recently put out an episode about Sam Harris. It's a, an Irish dude and an Australian dude. They're they're wonderful. But our subreddit spawned their subreddit. So. Yeah. So they're very thankful to us. Um, also, check out our Instagram, uh, Very Bad Wizards, where um, we post after each episode. Um, you can listen and rate us on Apple Music. And if you're feeling generous, leave us a review on Apple Music. We really, really appreciate Apple it. Apple Podcasts. Uh, Apple Podcasts, I'm sorry. Um, wow. Who knew you would correct me on something, Apple? Well, you never <laughs> get that right. You've been I saying never, iTunes yeah, and for the, until like a few <laughs> weeks ago, and now you're just saying Apple Music. Now I'm just saying Apple. <laughs> Rate us on your iPhone. Um, listen. <laughs> your you can listen to mini. us. <laughs> and subscribe to us on Spotify. Again, we don't know if it does anything, but we like to see those Spotify numbers. We, we really appreciate it. Yes. And if you'd like to support us in even more tangible ways, um, you can go to our support page where we have a bunch of stuff up there. Um, 
You can leave us a one-time or recurring donation using PayPal, or you can become um, a Patreon supporter. And some exciting things are happening there. We just did an episode, I believe we mentioned it. Uh, We dropped uh, one on the Sopranos episode, College, from season one. Uh, you did something that I think will be very helpful to all of our listeners. You you assembled all of our bonus episodes and you put the, the links to them on our TheVeryBadWizards.com support page. So for if you're a Patreon listener, it will show up in your feed, but you kind of have to scroll to find them because yeah. you also get the ad-free episodes in that same feed. But now, um, this yeah. So you so you'll have a whole backlog of bonus episodes, and and Dave, you if I'm not mistaken, just put out volume five of your beats. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, I I had this weird spurt of uh, create creativity and uh, <laughs> and work, and so volume five of the uh, Beats Without Rhymes is is out there on our on our patreon dollar and up subscribers can get access to it um it along with a couple of the other ones are on soundcloud so you get the private link there and yeah so so please please and i don't care if you share it but you know but (laughs) oh and you also if you're a five dollar and up per episode supporter you'll get to select uh an episode just put out a call for topics um, I suggest putting a, uh, voting on an episode that will require Tamler to read an entire book to prepare. <laughs> no, they Please. like you. They like you preparing. I think they <laughs> they they realize that I'm the one that does most of the preparation normally. Usually, yeah. yeah. They're, they're trying to uh, balance out the karma. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for but but in addition, you will get our five episode miniseries on the brothers Karamazov that we did over the summer, and that'll go directly to your feed. You can also buy that for $5 on Himalaya if you would like. Um, finally, we now have mugs. That's right. So so in addition to the T-shirts, if you go to our uh, page, now rather than just a merchandise tab, there's a T-shirt tab where you can buy our wonderful T-shirts and, and hoodies at Cotton Bureau. But we also just uh, put out some some mugs to, uh, to, satis- to satiate our audience's craving for drinkware. Yes. Uh, you can drink vodka or scotch out of those mugs. It doesn't just have to be coffee. But, but yeah, I really like the design. Um, yeah, it's really nice. I have, I have them right here. Tamler, I know. I'll send you some. I got to order one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I, I think they only ship in the United States um, for now, right? For now. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I got to double check on how to get that internationally. Apologies to all our wonderful international listeners. Who, are, who have let us know. Uh, in both comic and sometimes complainy ways <laughs> that it doesn't ship overseas or to Canada. Yeah, um, yeah thanks, everybody. All right, let's talk to Jesse. The Jewish clap. <laughs> the, the, Jew, the Jewish I once I once caught a case of the Jewish clap. It's rough. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> Sorry, I should save the incredible, incredible yeah. comments for the. You should take. <laughs> that's part, is that going to be part of your five in the Catskills? <laughs> type, my type five. <laughs>
All right. Well, we're happy to welcome Jesse Singal to the podcast. How, how do you pronounce your name? Is that right? Singal? Jesse Singal. Like Singal. Singal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jesse Singal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for doing the research to uh, pronounce my name correctly. I mean, always. That is a staple <laughs> of this show is that we oh, we probably over prepare. Yeah. Always on the first take, no less. Yeah. <laughs> no less. <laughs> yes. Definitely no less. We're no journalists. Thank you. I've listened to you guys for years and I just have this like this buildup of very bad wizard shtick, honestly. So I might inflict some of that on you. <laughs> nice. Did you did well, you guys know that if you take the song uh, All Star by Smash Mouth and you rotate it in 11 dimensions, it still sounds good. <laughs> and therefore, Niels Bohr theory of the atom is incorrect. <laughs> that's that's, that's a, your that's very a, bad wizards uh, shtick. That's that, all I got. It took me hours to write that. <laughs> Luckily, your book is better written. Um, <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about your book, although we are not that kind of podcast where people do book promo, but we're making a, a, an exception. We're fans of your work and this new book, which is a measured critique of social <laughs> psychology. Yeah, I guess we'll talk about that a little bit in the beginning and then we'll get into some culture war stuff. So, Dave, what did you think, yeah. given that he was attacking your entire profession? <laughs> so, I, you know, so I already knew that Jesse was uh, going to be decent and do a do a he was going to be conscientious um, in his coverage of the science. Um, but uh, well, one, I, I told this to Jesse offline. I think this is very like he's just a great writer. So I enjoyed I actually only planned to read like the intro in one chapter and I found myself reading more. Thank you. Um, and that's a lot. That's saying a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't read. I don't um, read anything. So. But the things here's the thing. Maybe this is just too because I'm inside baseball. The things that you cover, I'm sure that the, the wider audience doesn't know about. But these these have just been sort of like the knowledge within social psychology that some of the stuff just absolute crap and bullshit. And, and I don't know what the audience of people who read science writing, like how much they know about this, but this was, I wasn't surprised by any of the criticisms you were offering. Although I did learn a little bit more about say Marty Seligman and Holy shit. Just, we're going to talk about some positive psychology, like a bigger, yeah. I knew it was a scam, but man, I didn't realize the scope of the scam. Yeah. I, I didn't say scam. So, they said scam. I, my, the critique is much more measured, especially for legal purposes. No you scam. called it a scamola, I think. A right? scam, it's yeah. a big scamola. Hey. Yeah. So what I wanted to ask you was uh, just in general, when you started writing this book, which um, as I see from your self-promoting tweet was four years ago um, or something like that. Um, the the lay of the land was different, right? So this was it was still, I think, um, uh, c like controversial that say power posing might not be replicated. Um, in the interim time, as you've been writing, have you at least seen the field changing? Like, have you seen uh, us, like your outside observation of us as psychologists improving? Yeah, I mean, I, yes, I have. And I, I think the field is reforming itself, particularly social psychology, which like had the most reforming to do. My sense of like, in terms of the emails I get from readers who, who aren't psychologists, I think a lot of people still don't understand. Like, I, I listened to your guys' IAT uh, implicit association test episode. We might have some disagreement there. But like the Today Show ran a glowing segment on the IAT, I think, two weeks ago that didn't have a word of sort of the countervailing or skeptical evidence. So 
I think especially for Whoa. ideas that launch themselves with like a 30 million download TED talk, uh, the debunking often travels only a tenth as far. So I think the average reader might not understand just how shaky some of these ideas are. Yeah, it's so crazy for me to even think that people would still. I mean, I know it's true. You're right. Like people do implicit bias training and it's just like, I'm, I, I mean, as much as I'm actually more sympathetic to what the IAT is trying to do. Uh, there is zero evidence that that shit works as training. Yeah, like, that's just incredible. It, it's depressing. And I mean, one of the one of the points in my book I hit at over and over is if if you're like the HR manager at a corporation or you're the uh, superintendent yeah. of a school system, you're offered this menu of options and like you're not qualified to evaluate them. Like who knows how to evaluate stuff? It's hard. So you can't really blame people for just like reaching for whatever's on the shelf and using it. Yeah. And that comes across in the positive psychology stuff at the highest levels, right? Like you talk about how the military um, was incorporating it, right? An army general just without really any desire to look at the research backing it. And one of the interesting things about your book is that you do go into some causes for why people are so unskeptical and how they just jump at the new thing. They're like in The, the Simpsons, uh, in uh, like when the Phil Hartman character comes and sells them the monorail. <laughs> Why do you think people are so gullible for this stuff? I thought you were going to go with the, uh, the Bear Patrol reference. Yeah. <laughs> at least I would like to buy you. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think... That. One of the things is just like, I do think our brains latch on to monocausal accounts of why we're getting outcomes we don't like. So if you actually try to understand why uh, discriminate, racially discriminatory outcomes persist in the U.S., that's pretty complicated. And it's hard to sort of grasp the complexity. And not all of it comes down to just sort of discriminatory intent or sentiments. If you instead get diverted to a story where it's like, oh, that's implicit bias. We're all carrying around this thing called implicit bias. And if we can reduce it, there won't be a black-white achievement gap. It's a much more satisfying and tidy and easy to latch onto story. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's being human. But when it ends up costing hundreds of millions of dollars on sort of, at best, pointless uh, interventions, that's why I wrote the book. I, ju I just think it's really seductive just because we have human brains. Yeah, I, it, you, you kind of compare it to the uh, con, you know the Kahneman stuff, right? And we go on intuition with these things. At other times, it seems like they're almost making a decision to just do the easier thing, not because they intuitively it seems right, but just because to really examine the complexity would be would take too much energy, and and it just isn't as seductive. I, I, I also think that a lot of this stuff is trying to keep the status quo in place, and this is the easiest way to do that, to have some diversity seminar, implicit bias training, or whatever it is, is a way of avoiding doing the real work that it would require to address some of these issues and inequities. Yeah, that I mean, I lay out this theory that um, a lot of social psychologists have a worldview I call prime world, which basically is that, you know, the world is pretty good as is. We just have these pesky primes and biases. And if we could address those, and there's always some tool to address them, you know, we'll, we'll really improve things. And, um, you know, I, I do sort of tee off on John Barge's book, um, Before You Know It, because like... He makes arguments like that, that unconscious priming can explain why people don't believe in global warming. And these are areas where we don't it's not really a mystery why people don't believe in global warming. We don't need this sexy new theory to explain it. And that drives me a little bit crazy because that's exactly what you're getting to, where it's like 
that would be amazing if you could just like blast people with like a little uh what are those things you use to like clean out a computer just like some cold air and they'll be like oh <laughs> i get it yeah. like um right every time they buy an iced coffee they're they're uh, less likely to believe in global warming so just give them all hot coffee the priming stuff when you really look i mean this is not news to psychologists or philosophers who are skeptical of psychologists but the priming stuff that got published is so fucking crazy and i don't know Dude, I was at ground zero because I started my PhD program in like 97 and my grad program had the social area had, you know, it was located on the East Coast and major university. So we got a lot of people coming to give talks and I had moved from developmental to social. And I remember thinking, what? Like, are you fucking serious? (laughs) Like, I could not believe like um, App Dykstra House came and gave a talk. And he, he did pri- this primary research and he, uh, he presented this research that ended up getting published like in Science or Nature or something, that if you primed people with a professor, like that they would do better on like a test. So it was like a trivia. It was a trivia test. Right. And he's like, if you prime people with being a professor, they actually get more trivia questions right. And I remember thinking like, what the motherfucker? Yeah. But like if you prime them with Einstein, well, then you get a contrast effect because then they feel stupid. The one I, I mentioned in the book that I love is like you prime Israelis on different sides of the political spectrum. And Israelis, like more than almost any other nationality, when they fight about politics, they fucking they go at it because like, you know, Gaza Strip pull out Palestinian rights. These, these researchers found you just flash them an Israeli flag for like 200 milliseconds. And it's it primes such a sense of unity that after that, they actually have similar politics, which I know that like um, common common sense <laughs> is sort of an enemy of science, and and you know a lot of things that seem like common sense turn out not to be. But common sense has to kick in before you publish a study like that. I, yeah, yeah. Now I have a theory that if you just prime all Middle Easterners with hummus, they'll actually all <laughs> unite because everybody loves hummus. They'll just start having anal sacs. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to know how that connection got made. <laughs> is it like that because of the texture of it, or I don't. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know the mechanism, but um, I just know that it works. Yeah, that's fair. That's a social yeah. priming research doesn't often say that much about mechanisms, so that's that's that sounds about right. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Hey, piggybacking on Tamler's uh, question um, or comment about this uh, positive psychology stuff, there's one the the stuff that I found most fascinating is stuff that even I think among social psychologists doesn't get talked about, which is why I sort of appreciated your coverage of it. Was like it's understandable to me if you have a theory and you want to pimp it and you want everybody to believe your stuff, but like the the dark side to me of say so this is we should be specific here. You're you you're covering a lot of. Um, the, the U, University of Pennsylvania positive psychology work by Marty Seligman that ended up getting adopted by the military to, to prevent like PTSD that just didn't work. Um, the dark side for me, the real dark side is the funding sources. And I think that like the Templeton Foundation it has funded, essentially they created the entire field of positive psychology. And I, I can't help but think that if they had been a little more... Um, questioning of the people they were funding and the results that that led to more funding that this wouldn't happen but like this is just one of those follow the money kinds of stories like yeah i mean i don't that might have been true in the early days the, the problem is the positive psychology center at upenn now it sells these programs all over the world to, to schools to the military um it's just sort of astounding when you look at the difference between the evidence they produced and the sizes of the contracts they get I'm sure that's true, especially early on, because like the Templeton Foundation loves that stuff. Um, I have also benefited from 
these online talks they do where they give you a $50 seamless gift certificate just to listen to someone talk. So I really <laughs> oh, can't I've benefit it from the Templeton foundation too. Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> They're great foundation, maybe some questionable decisions uh, when it comes to benefited from the Templeton foundation. Somewhat. <laughs> uh, so I, can, can you, I want to talk about the positive psychology stuff, but maybe for our listeners who haven't diligently read your book as we have, could you just summarize what you did in that chapter? Because it is a, I would, it's a real sweeping indictment of that, the, the Penn positive psychology program and Marty Seligman. Yeah. So first the yeah. chapter of the uh, name of the chapter is the arc of the scientific universe is long, but it bends toward transparency. <laughs> Sorry. I just had to get that in there. <laughs> I told you there was a little bit of shtick. Uh, all right. So basically, um, in the late aughts, the army had this like horrible crisis where where people, often kids, often 20-year-olds, were coming back from doing multiple tours in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they were just destroyed by PTSD. Uh, some of them committed suicide. Uh, a lower number, but these were high-profile events, killed their partners or killed other people. Um, and the army, through a process I explained in the book, and and there's some conspiracy theories about how the army hooked up with Seligman because of his um, not implication in the torture stuff, but he was like a step or two removed from it. But there's a salon article on this. People can read. I, I didn't yeah, really yeah. find evidence to suggest that storyline made sense. Rather, there was one particular um, Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, she was sent out to try to find a, an intervention to help with PTSD and suicide. And she, uh, her husband read Seligman's book flourish and they met and Seligman sort of blew away the army. And he convinced them that this program, uh, the Positive Psychology Center had already developed called the Penn Resilience Program, could be adapted for military use to prevent PTSD and suicide. Um, the chapter has all the nitty-gritty details, but there are two main problems with this. One is the Penn Resilience Program was designed for 10 to 14-year-old school kids. It's sort of a universal program that supposedly could reduce their anxiety and depression. So right off the bat, you have sort of a giant leap. Like, how are you going to take a program for 10 to 14-year-olds to reduce anxiety and depression and adapt that for 20-year-olds about to go into a war zone? Like, any decent sort of person applying it's psychology... Offensive. It's offensive. It's actually offensive. <laughs> like, it's, it's deeply offensive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I'm the measured, careful journalist, but that's your guys' informed yeah. opinion. Um, so right off the bat, you're like, well, you're going to have to change that a lot. You're going to have to adapt the hell of it. They didn't really adapt the hell of it. They, they pretty much presented it as is to every soldier. It became a mandatory program called Comprehensive Soldier Fitness. The other problem is by the time they rolled this out in 2009, one of the creators of the Penn Resilience Program uh, co-authored a meta-analysis where she was like, you know, this has some effect. It's statistically significant, but we're not even sure it's clinically significant. In other words, we're not even sure this program meaningfully uh, – prevents and reduces anxiety and depressive symptoms in 11-year-olds. So you take a program that doesn't necessarily work in that population, apply it to a different population, make it mandatory. And and I don't have firm numbers, but a good estimate is like the Army has spent more than $500 million on this. And there's no evidence it does anything. And there's no theoretical reason to think it would prevent PTSD because you can't prevent PTSD by telling people to hunt the good stuff and look on the bright side, which are literally parts of this program. Like the reason I would say this is offensive is this is a, a really important thing that yeah. you're trying to do, right? Like you are sending people into wars, probably wars that we have no business being a part of anyway, but even setting that aside and, and, and they're coming back in record numbers with PTSD um, after Iraq and Afghanistan and you 
have a, it seems like the most solemn duty to just try to protect these people as much as they can from the, all the horrible symptoms. You have, you can't just put some little pretend fake bandaid on the problem, right? Like this is something that you have to get to the root of as like, you know, it's a moral imperative and the way you describe it, it just sounds like they, they're not looking for that. They're looking for a cosmetic fix to just say they did something. First of all, I can't believe you're against the liberation of Iraq. I'm deeply offended by that. Um, (laughs) Pro, you pro Saddam motherfucker. Yeah. (laughs) No, I. So, one of the challenges of this book is like you don't want to impugn people's motives if they don't deserve to be impugned. I think I make a strong case that Seligman oversold the evidence and that he also didn't really know much about PTSD. At, At one point, he says that you know, because PTSD causes anxiety and depression, a program that in theory prevents anxiety and depression will treat PTSD. But that's very causally confused. That's like saying, if you have the flu and I cure your cough, I'm curing the flu, which isn't really how anything works. Um, and he's not an idiot, right? He's no. not a total moron. He's not an imbecile. So he he would understand that that was causally confused. You would think so. I think there's a chance he convinced himself that this program could be stretched to cover PTSD because that's sort of what positive psychology does. It takes these thin findings and tries to stretch them over big problems. I think the army was just not informed enough and convinced themselves, even though there were some naysayers on the inside, they wanted this to work. And it's it's such a wonderful image to imagine you could do this universal training and, and inoculate soldiers against this trauma. So, you know, I, I blame them in the sense that this was a horrible, disastrous waste of money. I don't think there was that much malevolence on their side. Yeah, I think that's I think you're you're right that malevolence isn't isn't there. But you know what there is is and I I've seen this in sort of like in the behavioral economics consulting work that I do. When you go into like a board meeting and you tell them about this stuff, like all this cool science, they lap it up. Yeah. They want to throw money at you and you don't you don't actually have to produce too much evidence. They actually like will they'll be fine if you just because that's what consulting is it's just like give us some ideas and then like oh this like if you attach like a powerpoint slide that shows that you did a meta-analysis that must mean it works and so so like the incentives on on all sides one is just like i'm sorry but like i think marty seligman is probably like just has ego problems like i think he probably really really loved that he was saving the army from ptsd i I just think that it's like it serves everybody in this way that's just a perverse incentives like what you one, I'm important because I've offered the solution and the other person thinks that they've hired a scientist to solve the problem and boom. And then you get money exchanging and and yeah, not, you can make a lot of money this way. Well, what, what you just described though, the consultant coming into the boardroom and wowing everyone, like that is exactly what happened here. There's a scene in, in yeah. his book Flourish where Seligman says he's um presenting to General Casey and Seligman says to his credit, we should pilot test this. And Seligman has this great moment, which you can tell Seligman is intending, I think, to make himself look good, where Casey says, General Casey, the guy deciding this, we don't, you know, he's like, damn it. He literally pounds a desk, I think. He says, we don't need a pilot study. Your work is so good and has been replicated so many times that we're just going to roll it out to the whole army. <laughs> I mean, he puts this in his fucking book. And the point I make is like, if you look at what he was replicate, what he was saying had been replicated, even assuming it had been replicated, Nothing had been replicated that suggested anyone could prevent PTSD. It was just such a different yeah. claim. And um, it, it's it's a crazy story. And it's weird that I could just like write about it in 2021 because it's been right out in the open for so long and only a couple of journalists have looked into it. Well, that's what I mean, though, that and I don't think there's malevolence. That's too strong. But there's a willful ignorance 
on the part of these people because it it'll it'll be a magic pill that they that will look like well if it didn't work I mean we tried and and we really had uh, uh, research to back this up and you have a duty to make sure that you're not getting sure but how like how far does that duty extend when this is one of the 20 responsibilities you have and you have five other projects due and it really is just an item on a list because at the end of the day everything's an item on the list and I think that's part of the problem yeah. well and then um, you also have like the it's ignorance I don't know on the part of say the decision makers in in the army or in the in the military whether it was willful ignorance probably like probably a lot of ignorance I, I've sat in on these meetings where somebody says well, like, why, why would you want to include a control group? Aren't you predicting <laughs> that it won't, it, that it won't work in that group? So like, don't do that one. Just do the condition where it will work. And you're just like, well, okay, but then we can never prove anything. So like the standards for evidence are just completely, I, I think, not understood by, by probably most people. Like, what does it mean to, to have evidence that this works? Yeah. I mean, that's honestly just not to make everything about marketing the book, but I do hope people like lay people feel a little bit more empowered to ask those sorts of questions of like, what does this evidence actually look like? Cause the difference between actual evidence and like evidence with mile high air quotes is, is gigantic. I, I feel like you guys are sugarcoating this and in almost surprising way. So Wait, I'm calling clear, him egotistical and ignorant. I'm I think the anything. Templeton <laughs> foundation is a wonderful source of funding for journalists and academics alike. As do I actually, um, the Templeton foundation is blameless in all of this. No, <laughs> Think about what happened. I mean, Jesse's already said it, right? They took a program that was marginally or just probably, if you did any kind of rigorous study of it, completely ineffective for 10 to 14-year-olds and said that that would work on soldiers who are going into to battle and, and then and that will help them not have PS, PTSD when they come back. That's insane. You don't need to be uh, trained in scientific methodology in psychometrics or anything like that to know that that's just crazy. I, 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 again, maybe it's not malevolence, but there's something pathologically fucked up about just even going in with that premise and accepting that it wasn't an insane premise. I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I think it's just a question of how much you want the, the postmortem to be about moral judgment versus institutional dysfunction, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. actually I actually do disagree. I think that like that that you're completely overestimating the degree of scientific knowledge that a is required to go through that evidence when somebody who is like selling their shtick throws papers at you. Like I, I like you do it does require a high degree of scientific literacy. Like it's, no, but, it's but, easy but, to but, say in retrospect, but like no, but no, no. This isn't Monday morning quarterbacking. How could you not ask? Well, since this was done means. for ten to fourteen year olds. How, like, why do you think it will work on... No, look, uh, I think it's wrong. I think Seligman knew it was wrong. But if you're saying that the general in that meeting should have had, like, this sophisticated sense of, like, well, all the evidence that they're telling me is there, how, like, the... But what about the causal chain, Marty? No. Like, they don't know. Like, people pay so much more money for so, like, so much dumber things. Like, take the entire, like, marketing and advertising world. They don't have any evidence that what they do works, but they throw money at it. And this, to me, is just a bunch of decision makers who don't know how to make decisions about this kind of science. I think the one way you might be going too soft on them is like all these guys had access to PTSD experts. Like the army works with like some of the top psychologists in the world. And they, some of them, or at least one of them told me like I wasn't consulted on this. So maybe that's an easy way to explain like what they could have done differently. Yeah. Maybe you could uh, describe that. The more, yeah. The actual treatments. I thought that was actually like treatments. one of the most yeah. interesting parts of the chapter because it, it really is the quick fix because you're showing the hard and messy work that it takes to actually help so yeah talk about that yeah. yeah i mean so what i mentioned 
in the chapters, there are these two like well-established programs the Army uses, interventions, uh, prolonged exposure therapy and cognitive processing therapy. And these have both received their own criticisms, including that they're a little bit like quick fix-ish because I think you know, uh, one of them is supposed to last like 14 weeks. But the difference is you're sitting one-on-one with a therapist. You're going through your trauma, figuring out what your triggers are. And the point I make in the chapter is like none of this shit is photogenic. I mean, I, I talked to Patricia Rezik, who's a path-breaking researcher in developing these interventions. And she's like, you're talking to a young man about the worst day of his life. And you sometimes have to undo the army's own training. Like the army told him, if everyone does your job, you'll all come home alive. And that didn't happen. And it's like, the comprehensive soldier fitness and Seligman's whole deal jibed with like army um, values in a very specific way, like self-possession, thinking positively, doing your job, actually treating PTSD is much more complicated than that. and doesn't necessarily fit into the army's values and just isn't the same sort of like universal quick fix. So, you know, the army obviously does fund these programs, but there's always been a challenge getting soldiers to actually participate in them when they come home, partly because of stigma, partly because if you're like a, a poor veteran, you might not be able to get to the local VA. So, I just sort of frame this in terms of an opportunity cost. Like when you think of what uh, $500 million or whatever it was could have done to actually help soldiers, that's where it gets, I think, pretty heartbreaking and infuriating. Do you ever have the temptation to go f- kind of full Marxist with this um, <laughs> and think that this is, you know, this is how like an imperialist country stays in power. This is how you maintain the status quo at the most powerful levels of business and government is by this pretend research that will come in and sort of fix the the main problems that you have. An alienated workforce, well, we'll do mindfulness yeah. and yoga and the, you know, and the stuff with the military. And what did you say that that Seligman was part of may have been part of or connected to something uh, involving <laughs> the justification of the torture thing? I don't know. Like I could get, I, I could see going that direction. I, about no, I mean, that's one of the book's arguments is that if you don't want to actually restructure society in any way, um, you, you roll out these interventions. And I, I do think the implicit association test, we don't need to get into it that deeply if you don't want to, but like talk about something that doesn't even start to address the underlying causes of racially discriminatory outcomes. I mean, that's a classic example. You're telling, how amazing would that be if, if us privileged white people could sit at a computer and take a 10 minute test and that would somehow lead to hundreds of years of racial oppression being undone? It makes, doesn't make any fucking sense. And that doesn't mean that I'm against like, you know, some of these uh, interventions working at the margins, but just... If you watch the way the IAT has taken over this conversation the last 20 years, I don't know. The diversity training thing is a good example because you compare what white people do versus what they claim to say they should do. People will, on the on one hand, say, we live in a horribly white supremacist country. We need to revolutionize everything. Okay, what are you going to do about it? Well, I bought the Robin D'Angelo book and you know my kids are still in private right. school. I, and my, I put the... Yeah. <laughs> I put the sign up on my lawn that says like refugees are welcome here if they can afford two thousand dollars a month for one bedroom. Yeah, but then like put like another bus stop in the middle of the neighborhood or that's why I find this uh, so fun. I mean, I have my own. Maybe in the culture war segment we'll get into this, but the the performative. The online term for this among sort of dirtbag leftists is rad libs, radical liberals, people who like the status quo but wrap themselves in like radical bullshit. These are, you know, these are the people saying abolish the police who if the police were abolished, they would be in a gated community in 20 minutes. Um, that kind yeah. of stuff drives me crazy. And I think it's a, <laughs> I'm immediately just like you guys are causing me to nosedive away from talking about my book. But um, I, I agree with your overall <laughs> diet. We're not that kind of show. I know. You know. You know. Yeah, they're going to buy your book anyway. So yeah. Yeah. The, um, but the IAT, you know, I, I actually don't I don't know that we would disagree that much about at least the application part. The 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 part where it's tracking where it might be tracking 
the actual structure of attitudes is to me, I think, still an open question. And I think in, in the episode that where we covered the IT, it's like it would require it requires a lot to be able to do the kind of research that would show that IATs might be diagnostic of whatever kind of uh, prejudice behavior. But it's to get back to your your uh, discussion of the of Seligman's program, that doesn't mean that fixing implicit attitudes would in any way actually cause behavioral change. Like that's just yeah. that's just a crazy step. Like that the thought that you know how you can improve your IT score? Slow down when you take the IIT. <laughs> right. Like don't slow down enough that the algorithm will kick your data out, but slow down just enough that like you can and you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and there therefore <laughs> racism will be gone. Well, <laughs> and there's no evidence that it does. Like Yeah, I mean people can listen to our whole episode. We went yeah. over this like it's, a lot. It's idiot and I'm sure we weren't hard enough on it. Like that was early. But it, it becomes uh, almost a religious <laughs> belief. Like this this important legal scholar once wrote that like of potential implicit bias interventions that if someone I think he said if someone is found liable in a discrimination case, maybe give them a screen uh, screensaver where there's exemplars of black achievement. So like is that is that really likely to be the reason for these outcomes that someone was unaware there are black judges and doctors and needs, it's like the the most over the top uh, priming wish casting? Well, that's and that's the thing. I mean, it's it's like this hand wavy. These are not the droids you're looking for kind of thing. Where I'm like, well, explicit prejudice might be what you want to target. Um, I still maintain that implicit or structural bias, I think the structural stuff. Yeah, yeah either yeah. either, but yeah. It, but it, like, I think implicit bias is like might very well be tracking something interesting. But I'd never believe that that thing is more important than than both the structural and the explicit attitude problem. Yeah, in and, society, and that. Yeah, yeah. That's where well, that's where I land. That like we have this pie of discriminatory outcomes, and even if you could prove forty percent of the pie was implicit, to want to target that, you need to be able to prove you could actually move the needle on people's behavior as driven by implicit biases. But none of this has happened. They never even they never even proved. Not that it's an easy thing to prove that implicit bias is that. I mean, I, it could be ten percent of the pie for all we know. The structural stuff is so screamingly obvious, like intergenerational cycles of poverty where people are cut off from any sort of opportunity. But that's hard to address, and that takes money and redistribution. So maybe I'm becoming a communist as I record this. Well, I, here's another one to be a communist for. Like, this is in the positive psychology chapter where somebody, I don't remember her name, put out something that says 50% is your genetics, uh, 10% is your environment That's the or happiness your circumstances. Pie that, that selling the happiness pushed, pie. Yeah, 40% yeah. is under your control. 40% of your for, capacity for happiness is under your control. And in your book, you say they just kind of made up the, the genetic portion of the pie, right? Yeah. Uh, just so, and I'm sure they made up, or I would love. It was the environmental portion that I think they had to fudge, right? Because they had like a heritability estimate of like 40 to 50. Well, if, if heritability, like, the higher, you know, they're, they're not independent. If heritability uh, goes higher, that means there's less room for our own decisions and behavior. And yeah, that was a uh, Nick Brown and uh, Julie, Julia Rohrer. They, they basically showed that like, this was just an arbitrary estimate and one that, you know, uh, was beneficial to positive psychology. Because if only 10% of our happiness was within our control, we wouldn't seek out positive psychologists. But but it's not only that. It also gives this um, message to the population that you're in control of 40% of your life. So, so if you're struggling, if you are alienated, then it's your fault, probably. Or at least 40% of it is your fault. And again, that's another thing that made me think that you could take this book in that direction of... 
even though they're not thinking at this level um, as they're doing the research, they just want the money and the, the, the fame and maybe they're telling themselves a story in their own head. The fact that this stuff catches on is due to the fact that it discourages a more social and more structural um, types of reform. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm obviously open to that argument. We, we should also add that America has been a land of self-help for centuries. And we're just like, there's something in our DNA that makes us uh, susceptible that's to true. this bullshit. So that's part of it, too. 40% of it is yeah. in our DNA. <laughs> yes, I exactly. Um, I, I think that Tamler uh, just needs to adopt a growth mindset to this stuff. and maybe He seemed open. very fixed. I can just see from his posture, he's quite fixed. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I'm in my stepmother's, like, chair. That's, uh, <laughs> oh, I think it's supposed to be like, yeah, I, I, it really is. It's like fucking me up a little bit. Um, Wait, that's that's to the chair it, where she does all her racism. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm just joking. I've softened on her considerably. Christine, I hope you didn't hear this. Well, she recently blocked me on Twitter. So uh, <laughs> blocked by yeah. my stepmother. The Tamler Summer story. Yeah, <laughs> that's my memoir. <laughs> Thank you, Jesse. You're welcome. Um, I want to talk about some of that culture war stuff soon, but it's it's we've just talked about this stuff so much that we don't want to belabor it too much. People kind of know where Dave and I stand on a lot of these issues. But um, any other final thoughts, Dave or Jesse? Yeah, I just wanted to ask you what um, what's the goal of aside from selling books? Are you looking to change the world? Like, are you looking to make an impact in terms of? Be making people better consumers of science like what i just want to know like what what gets you going when you wake up in the morning and you sit down to write a chapter on why uh, angela duckworth sucks i just want more podcast subscribers for my own podcast <laughs> no i mean i you know i don't like i don't like overhyped stuff i don't like bullshit i'm a connoisseur of sort of human frailty and the ways we get stuff wrong so i just i think there's some hope to just educate people about this and i also <clears throat> I want journalists to do a better job. That's why I ran so much about the IAT. Like a lot of that coverage sucks, but you know, it's difficult because journalism is collapsing structurally and there's less and less. It's hard to be a science reporter who doesn't have to produce three shitty blog posts a day. So I don't, I have more hope on the science reform side than the media reform side, but I'm just hoping to nudge things, uh, you know, a couple notches better as it were. Yeah, I yeah. think that actually seg segues nicely into maybe a discussion of the cultural war stuff because Tamler and I were talking like I'm fascinated by this collapse of journalism and the move of people to things like Substack. And I'm just curious about like how you see like the way that I see it is that um, people like Jesse Single now have the freedom to promote their own independent thinking on a platform like Substack and get get Patreon money. Um but you know what, man? Every time you say some fucking controversial shit, your Patreon money and your Substack money goes up. And you might find yourself saying more and more controversial shit just for that reason. And like, I think there's this narrative that this is good for independent journalism, but like, is it? I mean, the temptation to go the full like Dave Rubin, I'm going to fight the evil SJWs route is immense. And if my strategy yeah. was like, profit maximizing i would i would do that i happen to have like serious ideal, ideological dif uh, differences with those guys it's absolutely yeah. a problem and I, I don't mean to imply i don't mean to imply that that's your motivation at all no but no you're, no, you're no but you're right i, I think he was calling you dave rubin <laughs> yeah i mean a little more white now i think he's soft on white nationalism but other than that basically yeah. different um <laughs> No, no, dude, you're absolutely right. The, si the What worries me is the siloing because I'm in a very lucky position. I can make a good living doing this. I could just write the most – it's weird because the problem with mainstream media is it's horribly predictable. But 
subsets can get predictable too. And I can, without the influence of an editor, without most of my stuff being open to the public for critique, I could just churn out garbage for the next 10 years and I think make a living doing it. And that's a real risk. And I'm, I don't really know what to do about that, but um, there's such a huge incentive to just maximize any sort of culture war dispute. And I, I hate that because like when I get into culture war shit, it's because I think there's stuff worth talking about. And I think we need to do a better job policing our own sort of liberal institutions. I'm not in it to be like, oh, fuck you, people who care about racism and social justice. And I think there's a really sort of gross strain of that, especially on the right, that I don't like. And I, I think some people are like, oh, well, you must be on our side because you wrote this piece. And that's just not true at all. So this is interesting because I think it actually relates to what we were talking about before is to the extent that this is conscious, to the extent that this is motivated at some unconscious level through confirmation bias or other perverse incentives. But this is a charge that people level at the IDW types is that it's a grift, yeah. right? This is a grift. And you know now with the rise of Substack and Patreon, as Dave said, the, the, the number of people in this community has just exploded. And so I, I, I don't think that you're doing this consciously. Like I, I would be extremely su surprised. But at what level do you think the incentives are such that you will slowly start to convince yourself that you should be making a big deal about Mr. Potato Head or that you should be thinking that critical race theory is taking over the world? Do you worry about that? Just sort of, I mean... I mean, as I said on you. Twitter, when I grew up, Mr. Potato Head had a giant erect penis. And without that, <laughs> exactly. I would have been very confused sexually. So I, you know. How, how, I mean, how else would you learn to fillet? <laughs> I mean, how I, does so, a young boy learn? <laughs> I, 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 Tamar, I think these are fair points. I, I just think the, the particular dust-ups I've gotten into aren't out of some ideological sense that like the other side is idiots. It's because I am a little bit worried about the direction of journalism and you know, the grifting charge is sort of silly because there was a three month period over the summer when suddenly police abolition was in and every fucking outlet ran a blow, what we used to call a blowjob interview with a police abolition advocate. That was, it was a press release. It wasn't at all journalistic. It didn't ask the most basic follow-up questions. Why is that not grifting? When, when someone, when NPR does a really soft interview on someone who's just parroting a line that's popular on Twitter, but that has 10% of the country's support. But are they making money? doing that yeah i mean if, if you're on get on npr you expand your platform um so maybe that's also a grift i think every, i mean i basically make, think everything's right. a grift that's my general yeah. theory of the case i i think yeah. that anyone who wants to attack critical race theory or like make sweeping statements about critical theory more broadly like i'd like to know like what your goal is what do you think the world should look like my my gripe with sort of i i've read robin d'angelo's book and we did a podcast episode on it. i think she actively makes the world a worse place and actively drags us further from right. from addressing racism um and you know i don't think it's a grift she's a, she was the number one author in the country and it should strike people as weird that at a moment of heightened awareness of racial injustice people turn to a white woman to tell them how to address racism i think that's just a fascinating phenomenon and um she is the Marty Seligman of uh, 2021. Yeah. What, also, what does her race have to do with it, Jesse? I mean, come on. I'm sorry. That um, was so she, cool of me. <laughs> you're, but, you're playing identity politics, right? <laughs> but there is this thing. And like, if it's a grift to be an academic, fine, or be on NPR, fine. But that is a particular grift that we place ourselves in where the next day after releasing a podcast, we can actually see the effect of like, uh, of like, picking one topic over another on the number of tweets it gets and the number there is something that seems especially pernicious about that and not you know again this is i think played on every side 
whatnot. But I think that there is really what I'm interested in is this change in the structure of publicizing our work. It's fucked up. It's, it's, I mean, an, yeah, an, right? an economist would love it because we have more information than ever before. <laughs> I I just went through a couple weeks of like pretty intense Twitter bullshit and it directly benefited uh, in a significant way. I know. And I saw you say that, right? And yeah. I, you know, I actually like appreciate your like being transparent about this and like actually seeming to, it seems to bother you as it, as it, does. it should. Yeah. Um, yeah. um I, that's a problem. Like I, it basically requires like self-discipline. Like I need to commit to doing newsletter posts that are not going to be sexy and that are about like thorny social science stuff. So I'm not just like ranting about whatever. Um, and, and I just, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but I also do believe, and here maybe you can put me, unfortunately, in the same camp as someone like James Lindsay, God forbid, um, <laughs> in newsrooms at least, and on some campuses, there's a genuine meltdown going on that has been going on since the summer and that affects things like whether people can express mainstream political sentiments and what kind of research they can do. And I think that's real. I don't think it's McCarthy era. I don't think it's the end of the world. I don't think we're living in like Saudi Arabia, but there's absolutely a moral panic afoot about issues of race, particularly among white liberals right now, I think. Yeah, let's talk about that because this might be an area of substantive disagreement. So you know media better than I do, and I would believe that this is a crisis in certain areas of media. Whether it's a crisis on university campuses, I, I would agree that maybe there's there's a Not lot universe. of annoying shit. I overstated. Shit. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I'll, I'll clarify. I was just going to say like a lot of annoying shit on a bunch of campuses and then maybe a few campuses, the sort of usual suspects, the Oberlin, the Hampshires, whatever, um, where it really is out of control. But I, I think the extent of it is widely overstated by people of your ilk um, who just talk about it as if academia as a whole is being taken over by, um, you know, critical race theory, which is honestly completely insane. It is crazier than QAnon. Like, I agree. It's like just it's it's just has absolutely no basis in in fact, you know, maybe you have to do a like a dumb diversity seminar or something like that. But the idea that these like gender studies professors are like running the university is is clinically insane at, at the vast majority, the, the vast majority of campuses in the country. Yeah. So when you say it's out of control in college campuses, like that's not, I, I'm not sure what you, what you mean by that or what like yeah. what you're referring to. Well, so look, I, I graduated from the University of Michigan in 2006 and I, I just told this story actually at some other podcast, some other shitty podcast, not a good podcast Such like a this podcast one. horror. Yeah, exactly. I can't believe we have you wow. on. I, I thought like, you I, came on our shitty podcast. If you stand on a <laughs> if you stand on a street corner in Brooklyn wearing tight fitting pants, someone will invite you on their podcast. We're all podcasters here. Um, you should go on Come Town, aren't they in Brooklyn? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. But no comment. I've never listened to Come Town at all. Uh, never. Um, if you if you YouTube search woke Italian gangsters, which is a Come Town clip, I can actually recommend that. But that's the only part I've ever heard. Um, okay, so so I would drive. I would do this twelve hour drive Ann Arbor to Boston, where I'm from, and I would listen. I was fascinated by Michael Savage, Sean Hannity, all these assholes, and they would say liberal academia is run by Marxists. And I was at the University of Michigan, which you would view as an epicenter of that shit, but I didn't recognize that at all. Like it, it just wasn't. These claims tend to be overheated and overstated. I, I may have done that earlier. What I mean is, on a lot of elite campuses, 
even though I think 90% of the people just have normal political views, there is this maybe timidity uh, on the part of administrators where when shit blows up, it gets really bad and it does create a chilling effect. Uh, I'm finishing up a story about a woman who briefly disrupted uh, a white fragility training. This was at a community college in Washington. So not an elite school, but I think it's still a relevant story. She read, read like some four minute thing saying she didn't like the way this training was stru structured. Her university spent something like $250,000. That's an estimate. They've admitted to 80,000, but it's probably much higher based on, on what I know, investigating her for months. She was immediately kicked out of her teaching duties and, and basically treated like someone who had just gone to the center of campus and read from Mein Kampf. There was just another blow up uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association where this. Wait, 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 wait. Sure, what did sure. she say? She basically read a statement that she found the sort of Robin D'Angelo and, and critical race theory, her I think her words, not mine, uh, approach to divisive and that she thought we should be focusing more on things like unemployment and we're focusing on race too much. I didn't agree with every word of it, but I, I listened to audio. It was like it was something you would could have seen David Brooks write in The New York Times. Like like every two weeks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the yeah. number there are just. Mostly this is people reaching out to me and to other people deemed problematic and saying like my campus, my newsroom are going crazy. I don't think critical race theory is like controlling everything. I think as someone who has written about difficult issues and got in drag for it, I want it to be easy to do that within limits. I'm not saying we should be like, oh, maybe phrenology is right. But obviously to write about violence and sex and power, you need to have some license to be controversial. I know for a fact in media there's a real meltdown right now. That's why people are sort of flocking to Substack to those voices. I suspect in academia, there's some of that going on based on the notes I get and a few stories I've heard. Uh, I could be overstating it. It's also not by any stretch the only thing I write about. I just wrote a book about other stuff. There is to be expected an increased sensitivity in discussion of racial topics. And I think that that increase in sensitivity, let's take, we can go to the New York Times newsroom if you want. Um, yeah. Paul Bloom wrote a, an op-ed on this saying like, no, no, and sometimes intentions don't matter, but here, here they matter. Um, my reading of this is, excessive as it might be, people really care whether or not people are racist. And there are some dog whistly things that people do when they get up and interrupt board meetings for four minutes that may not require a $100,000 investigation, but that are foul. And to call it a moral panic is to diminish the importance of caring how people think about these issues. Now, I don't disagree that a lot of this stuff is, is complete bullshit. What I worry about the phrasing of moral panic is, one, the other side is moral panicking just as much about race, critical race theory. Like I think that that is yeah. aptly described as moral panic. Yeah. Two, it diminishes all legitimate claims to, uh, to actual, uh, you know, to like actually point out instances in which people should change the way they talk and should change the way they treat people. Well, you know, 10 minutes ago, Tamler was saying that he thinks a lot of this is just sort of like papering over the real problems bullshit. I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't yeah. accuse him. And, and and we're talking about largely the same stuff, like the same sort of. So the Donald McNeil situation that so when I say I read the Donald McNeil situation as sort of like intra elite squabbling and jockeying for position, when you read the full account of what happened, or at least his side of it this was not like some deeply racist guy. It's sort of ridiculous he got fired. And I just don't, I don't want that to be the environment uh, of, in which news is written. I'm not arguing that this is like the worst firing in history. I'm arguing that there's one particular field I care about journalism and that being very familiar with journalism and having worked for major outlets, watching this unfold, um, it struck me as something that would not have happened five years ago. And that, that just disturbed me. And 
you know, that doesn't mean Marxists are taking over the New York Times. The big letter that got sent had 150 names on it. I talked to a Times person who was sympathetic to McNeil who pointed out that's like a tenth of the newsroom. So it might be 80 or 90 percent of the people there disagree with what happened. I just think you can't look at the TikTok of what happened there and not think that something weird is going on at the Times. And there, you know, there have been a couple other incidents there, too, um, that are similar. Like you're clearly right that administrations and just profession, like the in in every profession, and academia is what I'm most familiar with. But it seems like this is true at you know studios, at major media outlets. They will just cave at the least amount of pressure. Yeah. Just like a, a few people on Twitter can just get Will Wilkinson fired. Like yeah. just it just takes nothing, right? And that is that's shameful at the at, at that level. I also think, and these, this may seem contradictory, that uh, there is also a cowardice among people just like me or, or, or you who work at these places that they just feel like they should be able to say whatever they want with just not even the tiniest, most negligible risk that something like this will happen to them. And that seems wrong, too. It seems like you should speak your mind as a, like a matter of virtue or something. You should speak your mind, even if there's a chance that a bunch of people on Twitter will call you out and then your craven administration won't back you up. Like, that's just still, that's life, you know? Uh, and so I feel like there's cowardice here at a lot of different levels and that people exaggerate how risky or dangerous it is for you to just express your views. And if those people at the Times had just, you know, made their voices heard, those people who probably silently disagreed with Don McNeil's firing for that reason, that's actually something that uh, could matter if they could just bring themselves to put their career in the tiniest little bit of jeopardy. Well, but that's why, like, I think there's some utility to exposing these stories. Like the 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 one that should be going up soon, I about this college trying to destroy this woman over the, you know, uh, anti-Robin D'Angelo thing. There's emails where people talk about they were white women talking about how they were so traumatized they got dizzy and got a headache because she disagreed with the white fragility training. I think we need to be able to call out bullshit like that because harm claims are a really important part of human life. And this you're harming me thing can be used to manipulate and control people. And if, if you don't one of the points I make in the story is this idea that harm claims have grown out of control is something everyone agrees with on the left from Sarah Schulman, who's a longtime leftist lesbian activist, to Connor Friedersdorf, who's like a heterodox whatever. Everyone seems to think this is a problem where you disagree with me, you're harming me has become a, a valid mode of debate. And <clears throat> I don't like the idea of just saying, well, people get fired sometimes. It, that robs us of agency. We're abdicating our responsibility to shape our own community. So I think I'd like it to be the case that when fucked up shit happens, people can can speak out about it. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I um. So I uh, <coughs> spoke with a colleague recently who's been sort of embroiled. She got caught up in some of this stuff, and um, she was just doing some research, interview research on on how academics felt about the climate, and. I bring it up because when she was asking me if like I am concerned or if I like fear about like if I have any fears about what I say in my workplace. Um, and I, I said, really, like the only people that kind of scare me are the undergraduates. I do see the degree to which this generation is going to have such drastically different norms that I'm afraid it's a losing battle. And so when you say, like, I'd like to have a newsroom where we can speak our mind. I think that will be the case. No, like, but this is what this is what you people always do. 
uh, by which I mean <laughs> my skeptics. Goi, you're, goi. Pre- you're pretending they're making some coherent, like defensible point, as though this is just like no, a, no, um, no, no, no. Okay, sorry. I, I'm not defending it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not defending it. I'm saying, I'm saying that's just like that generational difference is like I don't like it. I actually get in arguments with my own daughter because she thinks it's racist to say like just like I describe somebody's the eyes N-word. as Asian, <laughs> and she was. She was like, that's racist. And I was like, the fuck out of here. Like, how else am I supposed to describe? Am I sp- like, it's like you can't even say, you can't even describe someone as black. You have to say like, oh, that guy in the jeans with the curly hair. The one, with the, the one with know, the melanin. Like, cause, cause, yeah, yeah. There is a heightened, I don't know, Tamler, if you see this in, in your daughter's generation, but like, I don't like it. I don't like it. I'm, I'm sort of resigned to it though. But, the, <laughs> like, but this is the utility of the moral panic framework because- this shit is the vast majority of the stuff is going on in elite spaces. Like this is not like um, so many Thank of you for calling my daughter elite. Your daughter is incredibly I'm, I elite, I'm sure. No, no, but I mean like, so we, we talk, you don't think my daughter is your elite? daughter sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sure she's wonderful. Um, she just took her SATs. She got a very good. Score. <laughs> <laughs> One of those dads. 40% genetic. I think there's something specific going on among sort of like more privileged people that is a result of guilt and genuine concern about injustice. And I think a lot of these wars over linguistic stuff and usage and diversity trainings is these are not commonly held beliefs. Whenever you poll people on political correctness is not a great term. We do have polling data on it. The vast majority of Americans are sort of on our side about this stuff. So I, I really think there's a class component here that doesn't get the attention it deserves. And I'm not sure there is as deep or, or durable a generational difference as you think. I think it might be, you know, our kinds of people, college educated and above. So that's why I think it's interesting to look at this sort of um, ethnographically or sociologically. Like the people in the New York Times yeah. newsroom, Don, Donald McNeil climbed the ranks sort of the old fashioned way. He had he had come up somewhat blue collar. These The kids in the New York Times newsroom making us think about this, they're all from elite schools, yeah. which did not used to be the case. That's a genuine difference. I But see, I think you're right. Uh, although I think it's even, maybe you're even understating, like, it's like geographic too. Like my daughter, she goes to a public school, but it's a good public school. And it strikes me that they have more or less what you would sort of hope idealistic 16 year olds beliefs. And they still will joke around. They'll still make sort of inappropriate things, but they'll also, you know, they, they have views about what's right and they're not shy about expressing it. And, you know, I was in a class for the first time I've been teaching Tolstoy's confession, which is like his crisis uh, that made him almost want to end his own life because he thought life was meaningless uh, along with Camus, the myth of Sisyphus, just a little excerpt for that, like really focused around suicide. And for the first time this semester, I had a student email me saying, you know, you might want to put some sort of content warning about that stuff. Because Tolstoy really gets into his suicidal ideation um, in, the, in, in that text. And it's definitely true that nobody would have done that, you know, up till the last two or three years, because I've been doing this forever and it never occurred to me and it never clearly, it's something students were reluctant to express to me if it occurred to them. And now they did, but the way this student did it was very respectful. It was like, you don't have to, but I just thought I would um, tell you that that might be something you might consider. And it was, you know, it was exactly sort of what you would hope. And I kind of think that the student was right. And, you know, maybe now I will put some small little thing. It doesn't mean they don't have to read it. They still do. It's part of the course, but just as a, as a way of alerting them. Now I could see in different hands 
that story become like some new evidence that the, the sky is falling and Snowflake that the woke, woke SJ dub zoomers, yeah, are taking over. But like, it's, it strikes me as like a totally fine thing to have happened. Yeah. And, you know, may, and I'm sure it's worse at Cornell than it is at U of H. Um, Cougars yeah, final four, sure it is, yeah. but like, uh, that's, I don't know. Like this just strikes me as, as some of it's good, some of it's bad. A lot of it's really annoying, but it's not a crisis. I mean, part of the problem is there is this like outrage industrial complex, particularly on the right. Um, I don't know. Are you guys familiar with this sort of the legend of the Oberlin bon me controversy? No, the no. one of the sushi where the they, sushi exp- there was like for years, this was held up as an example of SJWs run amok that like some kid complained yeah. about cultural appropriation with yeah. regard yeah, yeah. to Bon Me. But then like someone at either the Chronicle or Inside Higher Ed looked into it more and it was like, there was no story there. It had just been misrepresented by a bunch of right wing <laughs> outlets. And I same. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I'll, yeah. I'll send you guys a link when we get off. I, I wrote about it for Intel about an example of how they should. I also like how racist we were to remember it as sushi. Yes, that that was several microaggressions <laughs> right there. Um, I don't, I, but I'm with you, Tamara. Like, who the fuck cares? If put on for something serious like you know rape or suicide mentions, I don't really care about stuff like that. I think stuff like that gets blown up. I'm, I'm much more concerned about stuff that prevents people's ability to actually like inquire about the world and about human life. And and that's the stuff I've seen. Like, you should be able to disagree with your fucking school's dumb diversity yeah. training without being investigated. You should be able to, JAMA should be able to put out a podcast where a dude for 15 minutes expresses light skepticism of structural racism. Someone was quoted in the Times saying that because a podcast said structural racism might not be the best framing, that caused untold trauma to black physicians. Nobody nobody thinks that's true. It's this weird performative thing. I mean, these are physicians working in, they, they see three-year-olds die. Does anyone actually think a physician is traumatized by the fact that a white person doesn't believe in structural racism. It just gets very, it gets a little bit sort of cultural revolutiony. And I'm not drawing a direct comparison, but it is creepy when you're like, you know, if you've been at the center of one of these, you just might as well just like. bring up the Holocaust. Then it's I literally mean, the Holocaust. <laughs> if you could cross nine 11 in the Holocaust, that's where we are. I tried to listen to it, by the way, on the Wayback machine that you linked to, um, was it Wayback Machine or Web, Web Archive? So. Whatever. Yeah. It didn't work. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, for some reason, it stopped halfway through. But at the beginning, whoever was uh, hosting the podcast wh- like, was saying, like, oh, I thought structural racism can't be true because I don't think it was the guy who got fired. I think it was whoever the host was because uh, racism is illegal. <laughs> like, that well, was he was sort he of laying the out the devil's advocate. Like, this is why I was I thought he was presenting that as like, how could there still be? It was dumb, but I thought he was playing the sort of. Yeah, rude. it was. Yeah. It was, it was funny though. I didn't get to the part. Yeah. It was, um, so here's like one of the things that like must be concerning because I think it's it's even concerning to to Tamler and to me, um, which is you know you and uh, Katie just were defending. I didn't hear the episode, but defending this guy, uh, that British comedian dude. Um, what's his name? Lineman. Oh God. Well, we weren't really defending him because we don't like the way Graham Linnan, who's uh Oh no, no, sorry, sorry. You were you were not defending him. You were you were saying that he criticizing was criticizing him, yeah. Um criticizing him. And um wow, I saw you got jumped by many of your followers for uh taking the wrong side. And so the the question in this is Tamler and I know when we when we put out a podcast where we criticize the left, uh we, we're pleasing a lot of a lot of people who yeah. might not we might not want to please like they're we're not on the same team so then but then when we say something criticizing the right that they jump they jump on us like do you worry about like you have to pick your battles like you don't want 
Ben Shapiro people like being on your team, do you? No, I think it's the wrong way to look at it. I mean, so what when you say Ben Shapiro, let's take Ben Shapiro himself has retweeted some of my stuff. When you say, what do you yeah. mean by him being on my team? Yeah, I mean, uh, the uh, a whole bunch of actual assholes using you and your work as evidence of the idiocy of the left and bringing along with that a whole bunch of, of ideologies that you, I know, Jesse yeah. Single would reject. Uh, no, I mean, I wouldn't be able to write anything interesting ever if I was worried, like, what if, what if this other person retweets it and that scene is supported? You right could now. write about cockroaches and their reproductive system. It might not be interesting, interesting to you. Well, did you see chapter eight of my book? That's, that's, we got in there. <laughs> no, I didn't get that far. <laughs> I, I just, I don't, I don't like the sort of guilt by association thing because I, first of all, I think the progressive movement in the States is pretty fucked up and that we've had to sort of lower our expectations for actual politics because it's so dysfunctional. I think there's actual internecine fighting going on to the left now that matters a lot that we saw manifested in the fact that Biden ran away with the primary, despite him being none of the people who write the news, who work at the New York Times, who work at NPR, wanted Biden to win. What does it tell us that he just waltzed to easy victory? I, I don't want to downplay that like corporations wanted him to win i mean that is, that is legitimately part of it but so did nice but, you know church lady but, but let me clarify yeah, because yeah. I, I i i don't want to like it's not a, i'm not making a guilt by association argument i'm making one of like personal conscience what like what do you feel like when um people so not impugning you or saying you're guilty i'm just saying like how do you feel about the fact that like some bona fide asshole racist people um would like think that you're on their side and then when all of a sudden when you criticize something then they might actually get mad at you because i saw the people get mad at you for like essentially uh, taking a position against this comedian that went contrary to what they think you probably believe i don't know why our problem with graham linehan is he's someone who in our view like sort of mocks trans people which is just fucking unacceptable under any circumstances all our points of contention on this stuff have to do with questions like you know a 12 year old wants to go on hormones what should the process look like and if you talk to actual clinicians it's not easy. It's not like an easy call to make. Um, I don't know what, I think sometimes people who follow you only on Twitter, but don't read your work, get a very skewed view of who you are and that anyone was surprised we would be against what, what this guy's done, which is something we've never done ourselves. Like I, I'm glad that they've been disabused of that notion, I guess. So just to build on what Dave was saying, the, I guess the issue might be, obviously you can't be responsible for, you know, like bad people, racist people use your stuff as a pretext for whatever. But on, on the other hand, like if you're someone like me who thinks a lot of this stuff is overblown and a lot of this stuff being overblown is actually bad for the media culture and for just culture in general, just the fact that people are distracted by fake culture war stuff. Like, do you worry that you might contribute to that, you know, like when Ben Shapiro or Dave Rubin or whoever just retweets your your stuff. It's it, This is something that is part of your identity right now that you do this. Like, do you worry about that? Just contributing to a, a larger dysfunction in the way we talk to, to each other about these issues. I, I was driving uh, back from Boston to New York yesterday. I got two emails in short order from a trans person who they just passed this really bad law in Arkansas banning youth transition, which yeah, uh, this person said they were crying. They were so furious at my work on this subject. They were going to send me all the obituaries of the kids who killed themselves. 
That was their plan. That was this was the Jesus first thing they Christ. thought of. Uh, I replied with one URL, which was a link to a story I wrote a year ago, saying these bands are a bad idea and why I'm, I'm against them. People have no fucking idea what I've written. The people on Twitter who who view me as this or yeah. that avatar of whatever. If someone thinks that my goal is like, I disagree with Ben Shapiro on so much. If Ben Shapiro retweets me thinking that we should make sure kids are assessed before they go on puberty blockers, Godspeed. I just, I just. I don't know. It's this moral contagion thing that bothers me and I think makes writers scared of their own shadow. Like what if people, what if the wrong sort of person likes this? Like being inside journalism. Um, did you guys talk about either the Demore memo or Covington? I should pull out an example you've talked about. We, we never really. We might've talked about Covington. That was fucked up. But that's an example where I know because I worked at New York Magazine. Something happens. Everyone in journalism goes on Twitter and sees what their friends are saying about it. And that absolutely shapes the coverage. And that's how we fuck up story after story after story. I would rather err more in the direction of Ben Shapiro retweets me than, oh, no, what if I tweet something Ben Shapiro uh, retweets? And and part of that is for the reason I just described. 90% of people on Twitter don't know what my politics are and have never read anything I've written. And I, I just... I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way and sort of abdicating some responsibility. But when you've been through the ringer on this and had so many people mad at you without having any knowledge of what you've actually written, I think your your only choice is to care less or to get off Twitter, which unfortunately I seem to be incapable of doing. You need to tweet <laughs> yeah. your pineapples more often, I think. We, we should talk about um, your battles with certain segments of the trans community. I think it would be people would should accuse we? us of. <laughs> sure. uh, yeah, maybe, I, or maybe we shouldn't. Well, I don't know that much about it. I do want to ask one last thing before maybe we get to that really quickly. Um, I don't know. Like there, there's one I was thinking about having you like uh, uh, a real IDW adjacent um, public figure. I don't, I don't think. Right, go ahead. I'll, you don't consider yourself. <laughs> no, the IDW shit is stupid, and all those like three quarters of those guys fucking said they wanted to vote for Trump to fight wokeism, which is the dumbest opinion imaginable, and one that Katie and I railed about at length because, like, yeah. we were furious that anyone. I mean, we'll accept all listeners. Yeah. Uh, but that's yeah. the dumb. You're gonna <laughs> vote for Donald Trump to fight wokeness. Anyway, go ahead. But that wasn't – that's not who I'm talking about. Like I'm not talking about the crazies yeah. like Lindsay um, or um, I wouldn't even – you know, I'm, I'm talking more about, I don't know, like the Sam Harris's and yeah. the, like the, the good ones of you guys. Um, the good you. The, the good you. The respectable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there is also this aspect – I was trying to figure out like what bothers me about this as much as it does because I probably overinflate like the problem of – the IDW. There's also just an element of, I don't know, like it, it's blinkered. It's this kind of like, they're constant, like Andrew Sullivan, great example, someone who just now just find him completely unreadable. Like everything is just illiberal. He'll say words like illiberal constantly. Like it's just not a word I feel like people should be constantly saying or Manichaean. Like you it's can't get word. one of his newsletter things without Manichaean in there. Would you say, <laughs> Tamler, would you say there's only two sides to the debate over using the word Manichaean? <laughs> yes, I would say. <laughs> Exactly. There's only, it's black and white. Uh, I don't know. There's something that's just lame about it. And it's like <laughs> an aesthetic argument for lameness. It's, it, that's, I think that's exactly it. It's an aesthetic, like aversion to this stuff. Cause there is this whole world of like beauty and art and movies and like nature and literature. And it seems like all they're focused on is like what somebody said on Twitter uh, the other day, or like, you know, what happened at this media outlet that they only heard of, um, today like i don't know there's something about it that feels like it's impoverished at some level 
So that, that that's I don't know what you. So I this is a, to more say of a comment than a question. <laughs> more of a comment than a question. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, I, but maybe you can uh, tell me why that's yeah, I could so through that wrong and, and offensive and annoying. It sounds like yeah. you're asking me. Uh, well, okay. Yeah. For one thing, I would say that's true. Some of these guys get obsessed with it. I think Sullivan writes about a lot of interesting stuff, and you know he. He, he's had trans activists on his podcast and he'll just have like a 60 minute conversation with them about disagreement, which I think is important. I find mainstream media right now to be, to have the exact same problem that James Lindsay has. MSM, like, MSM, MSM uh, with three parentheses around it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's the same shit, man. It's just this fucking the most predictable, unreadable. I mean, like I, I, I don't yeah. play video games a lot anymore, but I like video games. But like every article about a video game is just the same thing of like, here's how this one scene could be construed as rape. And it's just they don't put any effort into it. You know what they're going to think right. about anything. It's just so this might be a, a, a broader problem. Like Vox culture writers it's, or it's something. It's unfucking readable um, It really is. So that's one part. The other part is I think there's a right way to do this. Like when I criticize that stuff, like I did – um. Uh, I can never pronounce Mayor, Mayor Pete's last name. Buttigieg. Buttigieg? Buttigieg. So I, I I did a newsletter article about a horrible slate piece on on that guy, and um, I tried to lay out like I think there's an actual belief system under underpinning some of this stuff. I, I I call it like identitarianism, which is this belief that like groups have these essential characteristics. And this slate writer wrote a whole piece basically saying like it's bad that Mayor Pete doesn't feel more oppressed. And like, that's sort of interesting that Slate is running a piece saying that you have to, to be a real gay man who's like a gay gay. You have to say you're oppressed. Like, I don't know. How could you not find that a little bit interesting and worth diving into? I don't think that's just like throwing culture war shit against the wall. I think that's interesting. That somebody on Slate who probably got paid like 50 bucks to write that piece, like would put that on and they published it on their online outlet that just needs to put out content constantly. I mean, like, I'm not saying it's not annoying and it's not wrong, but it just seems like there's like an obsessive focus on that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Where like, you don't have to even know that that happened. You don't have to go to Slate. You know, I will say I just know. from being on Twitter too long, whenever there's a genuine like free speech incident where conservatives try to restrict speech, which they do all the time, like some of these laws trying to ban CRT. So the story will break at 1 p.m. And at 1.01 p.m., everyone does the same tweet. Oh, where's Barry Weiss on this? Why won't she denounce this? They're just as obsessed. <laughs> like All it is is people yelling at each other on Twitter a lot of the time. Yeah, it is. it, it does. Um, you know. I like the aesthetic argument because the importance of these issues aside, it, it I do grow weary of the centrality of these culture war issues taking up like my eyeballs, and it's just as much my fault for for reading all that stuff. You know, yeah. this is why, like right. we were complaining about this before. Um, I like I I I genuinely think though that Twitter, like what I was alluding to before about people who might be just terrible people loving you. Um, I think is a result of the impoverished nature of information exchange on Twitter, where yeah. they they just infer a lot from from a very very small amount of information, and actually get sad sometimes because your subtlety and your critical thinking, like even the way that you were like sort of unwilling to uh, just totally blast, for instance, like a social psychologist because there's a more nuanced measured argument to be made, that like does get lost in Twitter. Like it, it yeah. really is like, and you're I, like, I see what you're saying. You're like, why don't they fucking follow my links and read my actual opinions? They're not going to do that. No, I mean, I know like, they're not going to you know that, but you can't, but you, you can't know, have like, it both ways. You can't, we know they're not reading my stuff. So you can't really like take seriously whatever cartoon of me. No, but draw. choose, but, but choosing to tweet something about like a stupid culture war issue 
is is uh, your fault. Yeah. Right. So, well, like, I mean, the you... answer is I shouldn't be on Twitter. And and once the dust settles from my book, <laughs> you always no, say I'm, that. No, no, yeah. no, no. But this time, guys, I'm. This is a commitment device. <laughs> you heard it here first. By fucking June first, I will have p- underpaid some twenty year old to post <laughs> my shit for me, so I can take advantage of the platform without having to get involved in this shit. I can't be on Twitter anymore. So. That's a right. Jesse so, Single uh, pledges to sexually I, I harass groom, a twenty-year-old intern. Year yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, I think you know this, but you know I'm using you specifically as, as this example to make this point, not because I'm I'm actually impugning you for being on Twitter. This is like I think just so it is part of the problem. Yeah, part of the, no. I mean, yeah. th- this people act like Twitter doesn't matter, but journalists spend fucking twelve hours a day on Twitter. Of course, it matters to journalism and often to academia. I mean, it's it's bad. Yeah. As I was trying to figure out what to talk to you about, I was like, oh, like you tweeted something three days ago. Wait, no, now you tweeted something two days ago. That might be interesting. No, no, like what? Like I, you have to like, it's all 15 minutes. It, it's 15 minute chunks of outrage sometimes. Not not your tweets, it's, but like just no, the it's world. It's, it's, it destroys your brain. It's, it's, it was a really bad yeah. invention and I'm sad I got sucked into it. But I hope it helps me sell some <laughs> books at least. At least there's some upside maybe. I'm sure. It, yeah, I'm sure it will. For sure. Um, I, I guess... I, we're running way long. We should probably stop. I, I guess we're not going to have a nuanced conversation of anything involving your battles with the trans uh, community. But I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know that much about it. It seems like a lot of people are making stuff up. It feels it, it, there's definitely a ton of animosity and antagonism and ire directed at you on this, like to the to a fevered pitch at certain yeah. points. Although maybe that's better. That's died down a little bit. I don't know. But like. Do you have any idea how that happened and what degree of responsibility you bear for it? Is it just? I think um, I think if you're like a trans person, uh, you've probably had bad encounters with the medical system and you've probably had people doubt the sincerity of, of your identity and doubt that your identity is real. So, you know, anyone listening to this, the article I'm most controversial for was an Atlantic cover story about diagnosing trans youth, like younger kids, when they should go on hormones, which remains like a pretty complicated question in a way it sort of isn't for adults, although, you know, medicine's always complicated. So I think like if, if for a community that's experienced a lot of trauma and questioning and gatekeeping, I can understand how a a cover story in a major outlet that uh, is maybe too nuanced for their liking could, could be frustrating. And I, I get that. My beef has always been that like, from my view, you know, including that email I got yesterday, people seem to be responding to a version of me that doesn't really exist uh, and claim I make arguments I've never made. And I, I stand by the Atlantic cover story and I, I think it's a perfectly serviceable guide. Like if you're a, a parent going through this or if you're a young person uh, trying to explore your identity, you know, you could absolutely make a good faith argument. I, I should have, shouldn't have emphasized what I emphasized, but I, at the end of the day, I stand by it. I do think I've sometimes gotten in the muck on Twitter and gotten in fights with people I shouldn't get in fight with and definitely been too defensive and like, you know, a little bit spectrum-y about my inability to let stuff go, if I'm allowed to say that. Uh, I don't mean that you're in the most way. You're the most self-aware, self-destructive Twitter person I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you light yourself yeah. on fire and you're like, I am lighting myself on fire. I probably shouldn't <laughs> I do should this. I should stop. Yeah. The other difficult thing has been watching people, some with big platforms, publicly say, I shouldn't be allowed to write for anyone again. One guy said that that all my my social network should abandon me, that it's an ethical choice to choose to be friends with me. Uh, I've asked these people to have some kind of conversation so I could hear exactly what they disagree with me about. They never they never do. Um, so, yeah, I sort of feel like I've spent a I, lot of time responding to shit I've never written. And I'd, I'd like to spend more time responding to stuff I have written. 
So yeah. I like it's obviously been a huge part of of your life in the past few years, and um, to like when I've dug into uh, th- like these these fights that you have with people, um, just for the record, like I. Of course, like I'm concerned that trans people I might know and love would be upset uh, that you were on my podcast. Yeah. But, but these people really are making shit up. These people yeah. are really trying. These people to meaning a small but loud subset, not, not a like very trans small. People. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. I think, I actually think that like most, you know, like not to, this sounds insulting, but most of them probably don't know who you are. Like most of them. How dare you? <laughs> but these like, people, <laughs> most of these people. It's a particular kind of like uh, of of gaslighting that they've they've tried to put you through that um, is ugly, and and I am set, like I do believe that there is a valid question that somebody might have as to why you would write that article, why you would choose to focus on that. That discussion can be had, yeah, but that's that's not right. I'm sure you have reasons. Like I'm not saying you don't, and like it's interesting to you and fine. Um, I think the, the the extent of the argument that ignited this is simply like, are you silencing people? Are you are there parents who might turn to your article and say like, see Johnny, don't play with the Barbie? But that's beside the point. Like, what I want, I really want to just point out that if anybody does any real digging, there's there's no evidence that you've been what they say you've been. Yeah, I, no, I mean, I appreciate sad. that. I, I just think like, just read the fucking article. I mean, I, I don't want to be dismissive, but the I, I yeah. present in a positive light a, a trans kid who had a mastectomy, double mastectomy at, at age 16. And people are so online, they don't understand that, like, to most of the country, that's still a weird and new idea. My argument is basically as long as kids are well assessed, like, I think that might be the best path for some kids. Um, yeah, I would just say read the article. And it, people can just email me if you have a question about my work, email me. It's just having to respond to, like, uh, pretty arranged accusations from a tiny subset of the community and plenty of cis people. Some of the most aggressive people are cis people who have a chip on their shoulder. It, it's gotten tiring, but I, you know, I think I've responded on to all the major of. critiques on behalf of, right. That, that, those are the worst people in these blowups are the, I'm offended on behalf of other groups, people. Um, well, I uh, apologize for spreading all those lies about you. I thought I was well, doing Well, but that's it. the thing. I did sexually harass for the, for you good. and I groomed you. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I have I have receipts. Like, I have <laughs> Jesse Beach dick pics. That was, okay, that was the moment I realized things would be better was when a prominent, um, colorful internet personality publicly announced that, that she had receipts for my misbehavior, but she wasn't ready to show them yet. And, like, immediately yeah. people pledged, like, I think $50,000 if she would release the receipts, which she hasn't yet. So um, it's a weird social psychology thing, the way this these pylons work. But that, that might be a subject for another day. Well, you shouldn't Do have you, criticized us in your book. Then we would come to your defense with our social psychology. Yeah. I give you guys a shout out in my, my overdue replication rap that Pizarro is uh, producing. You guys you guys are That's mentioned, right. so I'm looking forward to that. Oh, good. Oh, nice. <laughs> Did you, do you think this has radicalized you? Because it seems like a lot of people who have been unfairly attacked then get a little bit radicalized by that um, for un- completely understandable reasons. I'm sure it's a very natural tendency. Do you think that's true of you to any extent? Um, I think it's, I'm stealing this answer from my co-host, but I, th- co-host, but I think it's made me a little bit more skeptical of this idea that like liberals are just like better or smarter and more science-based. I mean, I am liberal, so I do think that to <laughs> some extent, but I think it's made me more skeptical 
I do worry that if you fall down this wormhole of just like internet bullshit and these complaints about campus bullshit, it, they fucking aggressively recruit you like the real reactionary types. They want you. Right. They want you as like a, a, a victory for them. So you need to be careful of that. But I just like. And they'll give you a lot of money. Well, OK, people say that. The, <laughs> no, but seriously, like how many. You say that. Well, no, to be the actual <laughs> Dave Rubin level grifter, there are not a lot of slots for like real money. And, and there's just as many slots for like Robin D'Angelo and like um, yeah. the woman who yeah. wrote. Uh, no, it's all terrible. It's, movies, all terrible. it's all terrible. It's all terrible. Anyway, this is a concern, but this is all the all the more reason for me to use my the good luck of my podcast and newsletter success to focus on like long form writing, which is what I plan to do. And that keeps me out of the shit. I get, I'm so much more satisfied by long form writing than the culture war bullshit. So I'm going to do more. Of it. Can oh, we, that's awesome. Yeah. Can we take a, a step way back? Um, I just wanted to say that I know that probably, I know for a fact that we, we used to have the most popular uh, podcast on fireside.fm, but I think that uh, you guys. On the, on the, whole, on the whole thing. <laughs> well, I know the owner. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and um, you're saying a certain, you're saying another certain podcast. Now we're dwarfed. I'm saying another certain podcast that likes to bill itself as the only podcast has has probably not the uh, only. We were the first, the first, ever, the first, <laughs> the first, ever the first. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh man. Yeah. Cheers to that was all success. we had. Jesse. That was all we had. You know right? that it was all we had. It's all we could make our children proud of us with. It was it was just you know, and you took if it's any consolation from a long time. You guys pioneered the format of two unrelatable assholes talking for yeah, like 90 thanks. minutes. Without that, Katie and I never could have made this happen. What, yeah. Uh, well, Tamler just got We're glad we being, were profitable for yeah. you. <laughs> Tamler just got accused of being barely Jewish, uh, by the way. So I feel like it's a bit, yeah. barely Jewish. Uh, the, the barely Jewish. <laughs> I bet that's not some... an accusation people level at you no, that no. often. <laughs> Fuck you. That was, that was actually that was very anti Semitic what you just did. <laughs> I was going to say the format of some like vaguely diverse host and some uh, like barely Jewish host. Can, can I say just one thing about the replication rap before we sign off? Yes. So yeah, sure. I, I'm very overdue getting our patrons this rap about the replication crisis. Uh, Pizarro was nice enough to be my producer and I sent him my verses, one of which is people idealize science. That's a fact. You think that PhD spells God from the way that they act. And when he sent it back to me, he added himself at the end of that, be like, fuck you, Jesse. And that made me so happy. <laughs> I'd never been happy. A lot of people have said, fuck you, Jesse, to me in my life. That, that one made me so happy. So I was like Dr. Dre on the boards. I was like, I was like Dr. Dre. Slim Shady, you amazing. Thank you guys both for having me. I have listened to you guys forever, and it's an awesome podcast. And and there's hey, definitely thanks, some Jesse. very bad wizards in our podcast. And Thank you for this was fun. Thank yes. you for joining us. Just a very bad wizard.